Amen. Church, let's turn our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 13. We're entering a new chapter this morning, Revelation 13. We're just going to do the first four verses as we introduce the concept and the person of the first beast. So again, grab your Bibles. Let's turn to this text, Revelation 13. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Here at Gospel Fellowship, we stand when we read the Word. We're not trying to be religious. We're just trying to honor the fact that God's Word is inspired and inerrant. It's the authoritative Word of the only true and living God. It's one of the ways that we recognize its authority. So we stand when we hear it. Revelation 13.1, here's the text. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Verse 3, One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they... Uh, worshipped the beast, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. So the scene in the text here shifts now to the seashore at the end of chapter 12. Look at twelve, seventeen. He stood on the sand of the sea. And we see in verse 1 of this text, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now this is interesting because heretofore in chapter 12, we saw the war beginning as it were in heaven. Notice in chapter 12 verse 1, the scene starts off in heaven. And then later on, the dragon is thrown down to the earth. And David preached on this last week from 1213 when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so this drama begins, as it were, in heaven, and the dragon is thrown down to the earth. And now the sea comes into play here, too. And so part of the idea with John's mentioning of heaven and earth and sea, we have here the whole trilogy or the the whole triumvirate, heaven, earth, sea. Part of the idea here is that this battle is raging everywhere. Okay, There's this demonic cosmic rebellion, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, And part of the point of mentioning the sea here is that there's no place that you can go to flee from this battle. It's not like there's a place where you can just easily move off and get some respite or take some rest anywhere. But no, this demonic, raging rebellion takes place practically in every context. That's kind of the idea here with the heaven and the earth and the sea. Now, we mentioned the sea last week in my Sunday school lesson about the dragon and Leviathan, and it's no accident as you're going to see this morning, that this beast rises out of the sea because as we talked about when we studied Leviathan last week, the sea is something of a literary metaphor throughout the scriptures and particularly in the Old Testament, a standing for chaos or even evil. So sometimes the sea takes on the sort of evil, chaotic connotation here. And when the beast comes out of the sea, one of the ideas that's latent here in this text is that evil doesn't remain where it is. It tends to want to spill out. It tends to want to spill over. Evil doesn't like to stay in its natural confines. And so as we see the beast come out of the sea here, we kind of get the impression that the war is going on everywhere and that evil is going to continue to press, press, press forward until it tries to ruin and contaminate 
Everything. So that's part of why he mentions the sea here and the seashore. Now, we're meeting a new character in this sort of demonic starting lineup of evil as, as it is. Um, we looked already at the dragon. There's no question about this. The dragon stands for Satan. We see that clearly in 12.9. Look at that. 12.9, the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, so if you're wondering who the dragon is, it's fairly obviously Satan. That's what John has just told us in 12.9. And now we're going to meet this second personage of pure evil here, which is the beast rising out of the sea. As a matter of fact, we're going to see another beast in the weeks that come. Let's just take a, a quick look forward here, all the way down to chapter 13, verse 11. We're going to see another beast rising out of the earth. And so we have the dragon, we have the sea beast, and later on we're going to have the earth beast. Sometimes the book of Revelation calls the earth beast the false prophet as well. And so let's just do the math here. We've got the dragon who is Satan. We have the first beast or the sea beast today. And then later on, the land beast who is the false prophet. A lot of commentators have looked at that and said, this seems like some sort of an unholy trinity. Okay, And I don't think that's an accident. So the dragon roughly corresponds to the father God the Father is pure and He's right and He's good and He's holy in everything He does. The dragon is exactly the opposite of that in every category. You have the Son who is the ruling and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And this morning we're going to see the sea beast who wants worship. He wants power. He wants authority. Yes? And then later on as we look at the false prophet, we're going to see how he corresponds in an unholy um, asymmetry to the Holy Spirit whose work in our hearts is to persuade and to influence and to lead us into the things of the Lord. And so writ large here, we have this satanic, manipulative, malevolent, demonic, unholy corruption then of the three persons of the Trinity. So that's what's happening here in broader context. Now before we jump into the text, and I am going to in just a moment, I promise, one piece of literary context for you and one that you've become very familiar with now. John has in mind here, as he does in almost every paragraph of Revelation, a particular Old Testament source text that he is using, right, as part of the foundational understanding of what he's talking about here. And the source text in today's passage is very evidently, as you're going to see, Daniel 7, 1 to 8. We already read that text. I'll go as far as to say that you cannot understand Revelation 13 unless you first understand Daniel 7. So we are going to spend a little bit of time in that text as we go on this morning. This will make no sense to you if you don't have at least a basic grip on the ideas that are present in Daniel chapter 7. So keep that in mind, and that's why we're going to go back there in just a few moments. So um, if you're a note taker, and I certainly hope you are a note taker, imagine if you took notes on this entire series, how much you would understand of the book of Revelation if you are, though, let me give you the three points of our outline this morning, then we're going to jump right into the text, and we want to be faithful with our time here this morning. I've got three things I want to draw a highlight to. Number one, the beast is the agent of the dragon. Okay, so we're going to look at the way that the beast is the agent of doing the dragon's will. That's number one. Secondly, we're going to see the beast as a diabolical imitator of Christ. You say, how can that be? Well, he is. He's a, a twisted and malevolent imitator of Christ. We're going to see that. And then third, how the beast is the deceiver of many people. In fact, deceiver of the whole world, as it says in the text. Now, 
I will have one surprise for you as we go on. It'll come up rather soon in the text. So I just want to throw that out there for you. So be paying attention for the surprise as we go. At least it was a surprise to me. All right, so Bible's open, Revelation 13. Let's look at the first point here. The beast as the agent of the dragon. Everybody looking at verse 1 together. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was, now watch this, mark this here. Highlight this, circle this. That I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. So we have a leopard and a bear. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Just tuck that away for future reference. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So if you were to ask, where does this beast get any power? The answer is very obviously in verse 2. He gets his power from the dragon. Now I said, didn't I? that these three demonic persons are something of an unholy trinity in this couple of chapters in the book of Revelation. Please do not hear me saying, please do not hear me saying that they are somehow equal to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are not. Not in any way. The dragon, for as powerful as he is, as a demonic spirit in this world, he is virtually nothing compared to the Father. And the beast is nothing compared to the Son. And the false prophet, nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. They are analogous analogous in a very asymmetrical way. They're not at all equivalents as though the world were were some sort of a dualism, right? In which there's equal forces of good and evil. That's not right. And so, in fact, the dragon is so weak compared to the Father, okay, that he constantly needs, he is dependent upon, Uh, these sort of derivative forces of agency to do his will in the earth. Okay, He's not sovereign. He's nowhere close to the power of the Father. The devil constantly needs these sort of uh, evil, malevolent, diabolical agents to do his will in the earth. And that's why the devil is constantly uh, taking up influence or sway in three things. Persons, yes, institutions, and then thirdly, civil governments. Okay? The devil is very interested in co-opting for his own prerogatives persons, institutions, and civil governments. Okay? So we do not take this passage literally as though there's some sort of actual creature like a dragon or something that's going to come out of the sea. This is not the swamp thing here. Okay? This is not uh, the creature from the Black, Lag- Black Lagoon. Pretty good B-movie though, right? It's not what this is. This is something that bespeaks of civil or governmental authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial evil. Now you say, well, how did you know that? Well, I didn't just make that up. Okay, I'm deriving that from my interpretation of Daniel 7, the source text. The reason I'm holding that this beast is totalitarian governmental evil is because that's what's happening in Daniel chapter 7, which is evidently and quite apparently the source text for Revelation 13. So let's flip back to Daniel 7 and at least try to get some kind of a grip on the text that John, the apocalyptic writer, is working from here. So go back with me to Daniel chapter 7. I need you to do this. You have to see this. Don't just trust me. Look at it in your Bible. In Daniel 7, all right, Daniel is seeing his second major vision 
he saw another vision. Actually, he interprets a vision in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, they have very similar meanings because in both of these sections here, Daniel is interpreting something of a prediction. This is a predictive prophecy of four great, evil, diabolical, pagan, totalitarian governments that are going to unfold sequentially upon the earth. Okay, so let's just look at this. So Daniel sees in Daniel 7 here these four beasts, and interestingly, where are they coming from? We're not surprised. Out of the sea. Yes? Same thing as Revelation 13. The beasts come out of the sea. That's not surprising. He sees four different ones. And let's look at them. The first one is in Daniel 7, 4. It's like a lion with eagle's wings. Okay, and the wings are plucked off. Now, this is, this is most obviously a reference to Babylon because what he's describing here, the first beast, is a, is, a, is a beast, it's a configuration that Babylon used all the time to describe itself. It's called a griffin, right? It's a lion with wings on it. And Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they would very frequently use the symbol of a griffin, a winged lion, as symbolic of their own authority as the, the nation, the evil power of Babylon. And so that's the power of Daniel's own day. That's the power of his own time. So the first beast that he sees is Babylon. Now notice, though, that this beast is very quickly replaced in verse 5 with a second beast. And this beast is described like a bear. Well, if there's ever one creature that could fight a lion, and there's not many in the animal kingdom, a bear might be one that could do it, right? And so the bear comes up, and interestingly, the bear here is pictured with three ribs in its mouth. Now, the nation that conquered Babylon was the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, it actually conquered three other empires, which is why it has three ribs in its mouth. It conquered the empires of of Lydia, of Egypt, and of Babylon. So Persia becomes the great power on the earth at that time. But even Persia then is very quickly and powerfully conquered by the next civil government, this next pagan tyrannical power, which is Greece. And this is symbolized here in the third beast in verse 6. Look at this. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So that's Alexander the Great in the empire of Greece. He comes and he very quickly in the 300s BC, he conquers all of the nations that came before it. Alexander comes with swift and almost incomprehensible power like a, like a leopard would strike. And Alexander's great kingdom of, of Greece is then subdivided into four units, which is why here the leopard has these four wings or these four heads here in verse 6. And then finally, what Daniel sees in verse 7 is the fourth beast. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 7 uh, that this beast is not likened to any one particular animal like the previous ones were. This one is simply called a terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong beast with its uh, multiple heads and its ten horns. And here, what Daniel is most likely foreseeing then is the, the Roman Empire, okay, Rome was an empire unlike any other that came before it in its breadth, in its power, in its military might, especially in as much as the Caesars or the empire, the emperors actually begin to claim worship for themselves. And very importantly, you need to understand that Rome is the totalitarian power that is in place in every page of your New Testament. Okay, this is highly relevant. 
Because in both of Daniel's visions that he's interpreting in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, after Rome comes to power, the very next thing that he sees is the kingdom of Christ. So if you look onward, and we're not going to cover this today because we've already covered this a little bit in our series on Revelation. David did a whole sermon on this in the pavilion several months ago now. The very next thing that we see is the glory of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of all kingdoms, which is the kingdom of the Son of Man as he receives authority from the Ancient of Days. And so the Messiah is going to inbreak, his kingdom is going to inbreak in the midst of this terrible and terrifying Roman Empire. So that's the prophecy of Daniel. Now let's flip back to Revelation chapter 13. And by the way, everything Daniel saw came true. It's the inspired word of God. Amazing prophecy. And now here what we see in Revelation 13, now this is going to begin to make sense to us because John, the apocalyptic writer, he also sees a beast rising out of the sea, just like Daniel saw. And what does this look like as he sees it? Well, not surprisingly, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. But this time, check this out. This time, this beast has the attributes of all of the evil kingdoms that have come before it combined into one hideous malformation of authoritarian, totalitarian, evil power. Okay, So he sees this sort of admixture of all of the other evil governments that have come before it. And he is warning his readers and his hearers of what this power might and could be like. Now here comes the surprise in today's sermon. I'm just telling you, here it is. Okay? If you've been tracking with this sermon series, you've probably observed, if you're a careful listener, that whenever I've talked about the other views of the book of Revelation, namely preterism, historicism, in futurism, I've been a little bit dismissive of futurism, haven't I? I've given a few compliments to preterism, a few compliments to historicism. I haven't said a lot complimentary to futurism, which is usually held by our dispensational brothers and sisters. Now, i got to tell you, I'm not a dispensationalist, and please don't accuse me of being one. I'm not. But I'm going to give them a tally mark this morning to the credit. It is typically the futurist interpreters of the book of Revelation that have beat the warning drum of totalitarian, pagan, evil government in our day. Of the the interpreters of the book of Revelation, they seem to be the one group that is standing on the wall warning about the powers of civil government run amok and diabolically infilled by the power of Satan himself. They are at least the one group that has constantly warned us about totalitarian pagan power. See, the preterists, and I love the preterists, okay? But they're constantly telling me that the book of Revelation is about Rome in the first century. Here's Nero. Here's 70 AD. Okay? Their nose is in the text. That's good, right? But you've got to get your head up and look, at, look out as well. And the historicists, which normally are the reformers and the Puritans, love those guys, right? They're constantly interpreting this text as though it is the medieval Roman Catholic Church and especially the papacy. That's what they see here in this text. And it's usually the futurists that are telling us, look up and beware. And to that, I have to tell you, and maybe this is a surprise to you, 
But I give them a tally mark to their credit in this text because as I look at the world today, I see the same kinds of warnings. I'm feeling the same kinds of warnings that some of my futuristic brothers are here. Okay? Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not claiming to be. Uh, if, if, if I'm wrong on this, I will gladly crumple up my tinfoil hat and throw it away. Okay? And I will go back to my Bible again and again because I know that the word is true. But I've got to tell you, I used to think that all of the stuff about like one world governments, I, every time I would hear that, I would just dismiss that. Like that's UFO stuff, like that's JFK conspiracy theory stuff. And I would just put that away. And I always used to think, like, this is the West, though. And totalitarianism, that's a problem for those who are east of the city of Berlin. That's, a, that's an east of the Berlin Wall problem. I used to think that in the West, that this is the land of democracy and freedom and constitutional republic. And I used to say to myself, that could never happen here. But as I look out at the world today, uh, I get a little bit more concerned than I used to be for the rise of evil, tyrannical, authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial power. And again, you can call me crazy. I'll be glad to be wrong. But when I look out, I see ripples in the sea. Does that make sense? I see ripples in the sea. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to go further than that lest I get myself into trouble. Number two. Notice here the beast as the imitator of Christ. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, this is a very interesting text here, no question about that. Um, We could go into all sorts of rumors and theories about Nero and things like this, but I think probably the safest way to interpret this text is to suggest that the wound on the head of the beast is that head-crushing wound that was promised to us in the garden in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 15. You remember the promise in the proto-evangelium that the offspring of Eve would come and crush the head of Satan? Do you remember that promise all the way back in the garden? It's one of the first clear promises of what Christ is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the evil one. Yes? And so here, though, what's interesting about this text is that while it is called a mortal wound, and I will tell you that the mortal wound was given to Satan at Calvary, Christ crushed the head of Satan by dying on the cross and by rising again to new life at his resurrection. Though Satan still lives and though he still has some power, Uh, The death blow was dealt to him at Calvary, but he's alive today. He's swooning, but he's still alive, Satan is. And when we look at him here in verse 3, it certainly would appear that the wound has been healed. And I will just offer to you, that's that's exactly what he wants you to think. Okay, Satan is, if anything, a deceiver and a manipulator. And so Satan would have you to believe that the cross did nothing to him. He's already healed that up. He's moved on. Satan would have you believe that the cross was nothing. It was a blip on the radar. It was, a, it was a, a historical anomaly. Satan would have you to believe that the cross and Calvary did nothing to dissuade the power of his kingdom and his authority. But I will tell you this, 
The death blow was dealt to Satan at the cross of Calvary. He's not yet dead, but one day he will be at the return of Jesus Christ. And so Satan appears to be healed from this, but even that is sort of this dark imitation of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, when we look carefully at this text, what we see here is that the beast is a wicked, diabolical imitator of Jesus. How so? Well, look back at the text again. Let's just point out a couple of obvious things here. First, he wears a number of crowns. Okay? Why does Satan, why does the beast, why does the dragon even wear a number of crowns? Well, because Christ is the one who has many crowns. We're going to get to that in Revelation 19. Jesus wears many diadems. Uh, we see here that he also has many names written on himself, but these names are blasphemous names. Christ's names are glorious and beautiful names like King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And not only that, but especially this, please understand here about this beast that rises from the sea is that it will and does command and demand worship, just as Christ is worthy of all worship here. And so we have here, and this text is this diabolical, malevolent imitation of the kingship of Christ. So much so uh, that we might even ask ourselves, well, is imitating Christ good or bad? Well, it depends on the context, of course. There is a form of good imitation, and there is also wicked imitation. So if, if a son, let's just say a, a young boy, begins to imitate his father, that's a good form of imitation. Paul says that we are to imitate himself even as he imitates Christ. And so in one sense, we might say that the imitation of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. We should all be imitating Christ. On the other hand, I think that we're probably aware that there are other forms of imitation which are far more dark. If I were to steal your credit card number, if I were to take your social security number, if I were to take out bad debts in your name, obviously that's a, that's a twisted form of imitation here. And so Satan's imitation here of Christ has no vestige of good to it whatsoever, but is purely evil. And one of the, one of the big applications here that we need to take home today is, is, is you need to understand this, and, and me too, that evil is a twisted form of the good, okay? which is why it's so deceptive. So very often what evil is, it's, it's, a, it's a virtue, but it's twisted and mangled to the point of unrecognition. So let me just give you a couple examples here. Adultery is a twisted, broken form of marital intimacy. Marital intimacy is good. It's covenantal. But adultery is a, is a perverted twist of that. Same thing with homosexuality. Homosexuality is, in its essence, a twisted and darkened and, and uh, bent and mangled form of human sexuality. God is the one who gives to the, human, to the human race sexuality, but homosexuality is a twisted version of it. Okay? And false testimony is a twisted and bent form of testimony. And lust is a twisted and mangled form of love. And sloth is a twisted and perverted form of rest. Give me any vice, and I could probably point to a virtue that underlies it. It's just that it's been twisted and perverted, you see? And so Satan here, he comes across this beast of the dragon. He comes across as one who is worthy of your worship. Ultimately, what he wants from you is nothing less than your heart. 
But of course, all he has to offer you back is his twisted and mangled form of his authoritarian power. Now, let me just answer a question that some of you are probably asking here. At least I hope you're asking this question. Is this the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? Have we come now to the Antichrist? Well, it's a little bit complicated. The, the Revelation actually doesn't use the word Antichrist. That may surprise you. John, John does in other places. In John's letters, the book of Revelation doesn't have the word Antichrist in it. Two things I want to tell you about the Antichrist, and then we need to move on and round up. First, this, remember, and please understand this, that in biblical theology, it's not Antichrist singular, it's Antichrist's plural. Okay? John says in 1 John 2.15 or 2.18, You've heard that Antichrist is coming, singular. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, have come. It's not just one, it's many. Okay? Jesus says the same thing in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 5. Many will come in my name, claiming that I am he. Do not trust them, he says. There's not just one Antichrist, there's a multiplicity of Antichrists. Having said that, okay, balance that also, balance that with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that there is a man of lawlessness singular yet to come. We did a whole sermon series on the book of 2 Thessalonians. So the most I'm going to say about that this morning is just to refer to you, you to my previous sermon on the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There does appear to be one sort of culminating form of antichristic power that will be present at the very time that the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns to destroy him. We call him the man of lawlessness. Okay, That's about all I can say about that. Third, notice here in this text that he is the deceiver of many. Look again at verse 4. They worship the dragon. It's a strong word, worship. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Well, good question. Who can fight against it? Well, for starters, you can. Okay? And me. But um, it is rather disconcerting here, and I think even disturbing, that there are so many people who are all too willing to give this beast here Uh, the worship that only Christ deserves. Notice this. Look at verse 4. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. Do you see that? They thought they were giving worship to the beast, but who were they actually worshipping behind the beast? The dragon. Or or another another way to say it is, they gave the dragon worship, that's the devil, by means of their loyalty to the beast. Does that make sense? And the human heart is so prone to latch on to something to worship. It's as, it's as though, and it's true, we are made to be worshipers, which is why if we don't worship the true and living God, we're just going to move on to whatever the heart thinks is the next best thing. And so often, unfortunately, that's, that next best thing is going to be found in the political realm. Okay? We're made to worship. And just like birds are made to fly, 
and gravity is made to pull and, and wheels are made to roll, the human heart is designed to worship. It is designed to express its ultimate allegiance and adoration to whatever thing it thinks is the greatest. And if the heart doesn't recognize the Lordship of Christ, it will very easily and quite willingly give its loyalty to the next most powerful thing. And the warning here is that the beast is going to command it and demand it, and if he doesn't get it, he's willing to take it. Okay. Who can fight against it? Well, it's pretty hard. When the beast has the power of taxation, when the beast has the power of conscription, when the beast has the power of jurisdiction, when the beast has the power of information, when the beast has the power of search and seizure, when the beast has the power of the judicatory system, when the beast has ultimate power, it is very hard to fight against the beast. So who can do it? Well, for starters, you and I can. And the way we fight against it is by ascribing ultimate loyalty only to Jesus Christ. Whatever else you may say about the interpretation here, clearly this is a demand for exclusive loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus Christ no matter what comes. Everybody with me on that? Two applications real quick, and then we're going to the Lord's table. First, Application number A, Christ is sufficient such that you do not need to worship or adore the beast. Does the government promise you freedom? Be careful how you answer that question. Because Christ is sufficient to grant freedom. The moment the government tells you it gives you a freedom... It's already lying. The government does not have the power to give you freedoms. The government has the power to recognize inalienable freedoms that are given to us from the Lord. Okay? If the government tells you it's giving you a freedom, don't believe it. Freedoms come from the Lord. If the government tells you that it can provide for you, be careful what you take from its hand. Uh, very often it comes with a hook in it and a line. Okay? When the government promises that it can provide for you, recognize that it cannot provide anything that the Lord himself cannot provide for you many times better in Christ. Does the government promise you health or health care? Be careful. Because the physician of souls is the one who is Lord both of the body and of the soul. Does the government offer you protection? Be careful. There is no protection better than that which the Lord provides for you in his sovereignty in the many angels that he can command concerning you. In other words, anytime the government tells you it has something that you need, be very careful lest you find it greater in Christ. Okay? Christ is sufficient. Secondly, application B, Christ is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign. We've seen today a beast come out of the sea. In a couple of paragraphs, we're going to see a beast come from the land. It's not an accident that one beast would come from the sea and one come from the land because we already learned in chapter 10, didn't we, 
that there is a divine messenger who stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Do you remember that picture? Revelation 10? Okay. Christ is Lord of everything that comes out of the sea and everything that rises up from the land. He can conquer them, and he will, and he already has. And so therefore, whatever comes, whether I'm right or wrong about this text, ascribe ultimate loyalty to the sufficiency and the goodness of Jesus Christ and do not give your heart to another. Amen?